According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in John chapter 11. Once again, our growth comes through the scriptures. John chapter 11. Uh, we return back to uh, Lazarus and his resurrection. I believe we're going to get him back to life again today. Let's see. We, he's been dead for three weeks now as we've been studying this. And uh, I think today we get him back. I think we're familiar with this. Uh, the certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, in the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And uh, you got the two sisters and their brother Lazarus. And uh, four days that he is in the tomb. Uh, Jesus gets word that uh, Lazarus was sick, so he stays two days longer. He delays his uh, uh, return to Bethany, showing either uh, a lack of urgency or he doesn't care. What's he showing? No, he's obedient to the plan of God, which does not allow him to get back until Lazarus is good and stinky. And we're going to see that. Four days in the tomb. They're very uh, reluctant to roll the, tomb, the stone away. They're very reluctant to, uh, to do anything. And it's interesting because he uh, orders them to move the stone and they say, uh, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> they say, uh, you know, by this time there's going to be quite a stench. He's been in there for four days. And uh, isn't that interesting? Uh, lack of faith, of course. Uh, there's nothing he can do now. Uh, if he'd have been here in time, he could have kept him from dying. But now that he's been dead four days, there's no way that he can come back kind of a thing. So uh, anyway, this is what we're what we're dealing with. Before we begin, let's take a time for silent prayer to make sure we're filled with the Holy Spirit and uh, that we are suited up properly for worship. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your grace and truth. And Father, in the Old Testament, the uh, Levitical priesthood would uh, uh, travel to the temple or the tabernacle and they would actually um, change clothes to put on their priestly uh, vestments. And they had the cleansing procedure at the laver and all of the procedures involved in making sure that they were not defiling your, your courts. Father, uh, ours is a bit simpler and yet no less important, even more important, actually, Father, that we uh, not be here in an unworthy manner, that we be uh, cleansed from all unrighteousness, filled with your Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Father, that uh, you've made the provision possible for us to confess our sins and you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so today, Father, as we study to show ourselves approved, we thank you for the, uh, the great high priest that we have in the person of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the privilege we have to assemble in the Holy of Holies and to, uh, to study these things that, uh, Father, that we need. We need your word on a daily basis. Our world is growing darker and darker, Father. We need to stand in the truth and for the truth. So we thank you for the truth today. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Now, uh, as I say, we've been here for a couple of weeks already, and I think I charted out our slides well enough. Under uh, point one, we gave you the vocabulary for the name Lazarus. Uh, under point two, we uh, set the context for Mary and Martha. We've already done a lot of work on Mary and Martha because of the episode in uh, Luke chapter 10, the famous Mary and Martha episode. Uh, where Martha's in the kitchen getting all uh, carnal over the fact that Mary's not in there helping her and uh, the things that happen there. 
Under point three, we saw that Jesus received the human message, but he was already briefed on the divine assignment. He knew before the message even arrived what his assignment was going to be and um, took the time actually to go back to the Old Testament and illustrate with Samuel the uh, procedures and day-to-day life of a prophet in uh, the plan of God and um, opportunity to relate that here to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Under point four, uh, the fact that he remained two days longer in the Perean region. And there's so many principles there. Uh, motivated by his love and his desire to not arrive too soon. To not arrive too soon. Remember, as you're praying in the will of God, that there is such a thing as too soon. All right? And uh, we often don't relate to that. And uh, often in our humanity, we don't like that. You know, we, we want to, you know, as soon as possible, because it's already been too long, as it were. So... Uh, we appreciate uh, believers that have a divine viewpoint for praying over the will of God and praying over the proper timing on God's will. See, and uh, appreciate that in any number of different contexts. There is such a thing as too soon, and uh, we want to leave ourselves in God's wisdom that things don't happen before they have to, and and uh, and, and all the rest. Uh, our building a, a, a project is a perfect illustration of that. When are we going to move to the new building? Well, when God wants us in the new building. And uh, not one day too soon, not one day too long, we're going to be there when he moves us there. And that's entirely in his hands. Different things we can do to uh, illustrate that, but I think you understand the principle. Uh, Jesus notifies his disciples that they're going to return to Judea. And uh, again, this is like every other verse in this chapter is somebody telling Jesus that he doesn't know what he's doing. All right. Uh, from the sisters sending word that, you know, he whom you love is sick. Why aren't you here? All right. To uh, Jesus saying, OK, we're going to go back to Judea. And the disciples saying, uh, Lord, uh, don't you remember they're trying to kill you? We can't, we can't go back there. Right. We see that in verse eight. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going are you going there again? See, it just seems that every other verse in this chapter is somebody uh, telling Jesus he's not, you know, he's not aware of what's going on or he doesn't know what he's doing or he's making a mistake or they've got better ideas for what, uh, you know, the way he should go about doing things. Um, interesting uh, applications there. All right, there's three sub points. So I'll skip those for now. Did those last week. Moving on to point six then. Four days in the tomb allowed for Lazarus to exceed the time frame for the Jonah slash Jesus resurrection pattern. And this will tie in very well, of course, because we're doing Jonah right now on Sundays. And this will tie in very well for us. And, uh, you know, not that I planned it that way. It's just amazing how that worked out, right? That we started this Life of Christ series three years ago and had no clue, or four years ago, had no clue that uh, it was going to match up with... uh, our minor prophet series, the way that it has. Well, thanks be to the Lord for being so faithful. All right, four days dead. And uh, we have the emphasis on four days many times in this chapter, several times anyway. Uh, just spotted there in verse 17. When Jesus came, he found that he'd already been in the tomb four days. Now, that's significant. Primarily because, the, not because the number four is so significant, but because the number three is very significant. It's significant repeatedly through the Old Testament, New Testament, uh, the prophetic revelation of, of Christ being, uh, being raised on the third day. It was typified by Jonah very vividly. It was uh, prophesied by Hosea. It was addressed in a number of different contexts um, in the Old Testament and, of course, realized in Christ as he was three days in the ground. So what's the impact on four days? Why four? Why is it now that this test had to go a day beyond? 
see, to, to uh, illustrate how weak the faith was and the people that didn't believe, you know, that the power of God that can raise someone from the dead has an expiration date or it has a time limit that if it's beyond three, well, now it's too late. It's too far. Sorry, you're just too dead to come back. How can you be too dead to be raised by the power of God when he does this? And it's going to become an important pattern for us. We want to understand what happens here. Um, Jonah, of course, is a pattern for Christ being raised on the third day. And we're going to go through those scriptures here today. Enoch and Elijah were patterns of, uh, of rapture. They were patterns of not physically dying, but being caught up to be with the Lord. One Gentile, Enoch, one Jew, Elijah. And so with a Gentile and a Jew not tasting death, but being caught up in the presence of the Lord, then you have a pattern for what we understand in the church age is the church. Neither Jew nor Gentile, but one body in Christ. And uh, at that wonderful day when the trumpet sounds, not tasting death, but being caught up to be with the Lord. So there's types and there's patterns and there's things that happen. What are we learning from somebody that's now four days dead? What are we learning from this example? See, and I think it comes down to what Jesus is teaching here in uh, the pattern of the resurrection and the life. And the fact that on the last day, it doesn't matter if you've been dead four days, 4,000 years, or however long, you're coming back. And that's, uh, that's the nature of it. All right. Four days in the tomb allowed for Lazarus to exceed the time frame for the Jonah-Jesus resurrection pattern. Now, sub-point A. All previous physical life resuscitations were unburied, recently deceased individuals. There are a total of six, three in the Old Testament, three in the New Testament, uh, not counting Enoch and Elijah, not counting Jonah, but there are six episodes where uh, physically dead human beings have physical life restored to them. And so we call those resuscitations rather than resurrections. Uh, if we try to maintain a distinction in the terminology, a resurrection is when uh, the, the body stands again. However, it is a transformed body. It is a glorified body. In the resurrection, um, there's, there's no more uh, death. There's no more suffering. There's no more pain. These things have passed away. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He is the first of the true eternal resurrections that ever takes place. And uh, we'll examine that down the road as well. We've already taught a lot of it out of... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. All right. Let's, uh, I know we ran out of time and I gave you these. Did you do your homework? Did you read all these verses? No, you didn't. So let's look at them this morning. 1 Kings 17. Let's look at them. 1 Kings 17. And let's just remind ourselves of uh, the resuscitation miracles that Scripture describes. 1 Kings 17. Keeping in mind, this is um, in the chapter before the, uh, the uh, confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And, uh, you know, Elijah was such a powerful prophet, and it's mind-boggling how he becomes such a wuss. He just uh, he becomes terrified of, of Jezebel and runs and cries like a baby and pouts in a cave like he's the only guy left. And uh, you just you're stunned because you read these other episodes in the chapters leading up to that. And Elijah was a powerful, powerful prophet. Uh, and, and you have to believe because of the way it's used in in the book of James that Elijah's prayer life was one of the most powerful prayer lives there ever was in the Old Testament. So anyway, well, here's an episode here in in First uh, Kings 17. 
reading from verses 17 through 23. Now, it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. Now, this is a house, by the way, where um, a believer with a hospitality ministry was bearing fruit. And uh, it's a pattern for us. If you have if you believe your gift and your ministry pertains to the showing of mercy or pertains to a a ministry that relates to mercy, then um, or a ministry that relates to hospitality, then this is a good chapter to learn from. And another one that we'll see here shortly as well. Now, these aren't church age believers and they don't have the spiritual gift of mercy showing and they don't have what we relate to in our spiritual gift. But it's still a pattern that we can learn from anyway. Um, this woman has been a blessing to him, this widow here or this lady here at Zarephath that's uh, in the previous verses there. Um, but the son of the woman, the mistress of the house became sick and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you? O man of God, amazing language, particularly because it relates in some quotations that Jesus would, would use, uh, like with his mother. Uh, what is this to do with us? O woman. What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. And he said to her, Give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. And he called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? And we want, there's a lot of doctrine that goes into this blessing by association, cursing by association, uh, the divine discipline consequences for different things. Um, we won't take the time to explore all that today, but just you know, know that it's in there. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, "O Lord, my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. Again, consider how extraordinary this is, because this is the first time it's ever happened. All right. You know, Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son and we're told that in his faith, he supposed that God could bring him back, that he supposed that if he plunged the knife in and killed his son, that somehow God would raise Isaac back again. Abraham supposed that, but it never happened because he was spared from actually killing his son. Nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in Israel's history do we have record that anyone ever was restored back to physical life after dying. See, and yet this is. Elijah's prayer life and Elijah's request, and it's granted here on this occasion. So the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child, literally the, I think it's nephesh there, the soul of the child returned to him and he revived. So where does the soul go when the body dies, right? You understand physical death is the separation of soul from body, okay, or soul spirit. I believe soul spirit is a unity with the dividing asunder. So when soul spirit departs the body, the body dies. Okay? And doctors can't measure that. They, can, they try to measure brain waves and heart function and other things for clinical death. But when the soul spirit departs, for the unbeliever, they don't have a spirit. But when the soul departs, the, uh, the, body's, the body's dead. Now, we know that when the soul departs, the angels carry the soul away to Abraham's bosom in the Old Testament. Or we get brought into, into heaven now in the New Testament. All right. Keep that in mind, though, because I think something different happens with these resuscitation uh, opportunities so while uh, the soul of the child returned to him and he revived elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother and elijah said see your son is alive and uh, the and like it says in hebrews 11 women receive back their dead by faith say then the woman said to elijah now i know that you are a man of god and that the word of the lord is uh, in your mouth is 
true. Miracles were designed to validate the divine authenticity. They were the credentials of God's prophets. So there's the first time ever. Now, over to 2 Kings, we switch from Elijah to Elisha. And you might remember when Elijah was caught up in the fiery chariot that uh, Elisha received his mantle. In addition to the prophetic mantle, he uh, received a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And in chapter 4, we have the first time that Elisha does a miracle similar to Elijah's. 2 Kings 4, verses 32 through 37. So this is the pattern. Elijah raised one back to physical life. Okay? Elisha is going to raise two back to physical life. It has the double portion of Elijah's spirit. Elijah raises one. Elisha raises two. Jesus raises three in, uh, in the New Testament. And so there's a, there's a pattern there with respect to that. And um, something else I was going to say. Oh, again, these aren't resurrections in eternal glory their physical life resuscitations this boy that comes back this widowed son that comes back um he's going to die again he's going to you know get old and live his life and, and physically die uh, at some future point of time all right second kings 4 verses 32 through 37 and uh elisha came into the house behold the lad was dead and lay on his bed now there's a uh, a message that comes prior to that and, um, boy, you have to go all the way back to verse 18 or thereabouts, or even earlier. Um, but here's the Shunammite woman, and she also has a ministry, you'll note. Back to verse 9, she says to her husband, Behold, now I perceive this is a holy man of God passing by us continually. Uh, please let us make a little walled upper chamber and let us set a bed there for him and a table and a chair and a lampstand. And it should be when he comes to us, he can turn in there. So they, they basically designate a room that's permanently his. Anytime he's passing through town, that's his place to stay. And this is their hospitality ministry. All right. Well, then this uh, son dies. Let's see. The uh, I want to highlight one other thing here, too. Look at... Verse 14, uh, he said to her, should I just read the whole chapter? <laughs> um, Gehazi is, is Elisha's servant, and uh, Gehazi answers, truly she has no son and her husband is old. He said, call her, and when he called her, she stood in the doorway, and he said, at this season next year you will embrace a son. And she said, oh no, my lord, oh man of God, do not lie to your, to your maidservant, all right? congregation doesn't appreciate it when the pastor's a jokester and they can't figure out is he joking is he telling the truth what's what's happening here and don't don't it's not even a funny joke you're lying to me i'm too old to have a baby my husband's too old to have a baby but he says no at this season next year you will embrace a son and it's a little awkward construction there it's an interesting term he doesn't say you're going to have a son he says you're going to embrace a son and because of the the verb embrace and the the vocabulary for it and the name of it. Anyway, the Jewish legends over the years uh, understood that, ooh, this is the prophet Habakkuk because Habakkuk means embraced. And so they create all these legends. And I, I personally don't think the time frame works out too well for that. Uh, I think this is too early and Habakkuk comes too much later. But yeah, it makes for a nice story. Um, you will embrace a son. And, uh, and there it is. Well, she has a son. What do you know? And uh, then the child grows up and then um, whether it's an aneurysm or whatever happens, my head, my head, and he dies. 
And so uh, she sends message, and or she actually goes herself, and in uh, that. Anyway, there's a long story with this. We'll maybe make mention of it when we get to Habakkuk in our Minor Prophets series. All right. And then um, she wants to know basically why are you lying to me, or why did you give me this son and then take it away, kind of a thing. So he says to Gehazi, all right, gird up your loins, take my staff in your hand, go your way. If you meet any man, do not salute him. If anyone salutes you, do not answer him and lay my staff on the lad's, on the lad's face. So now is Elisha going personally to do this? Or is he simply dispatching his assistant to go do this? That's what's happening here, see. And so um, Gehazi passed on before them and laid the staff on the lad's face. And there was no sound or response. So he returned to meet him and told him, the lad is not awakened. But then when Elisha came into the house, behold, the lad was dead and lay on his bed. Anyway, so now he's going to do the, the miracle here. He entered. Now, why didn't the staff work? See, this is, this is a fun chapter. I love this. Anyway, more detail than I want to probably go into today. Um, all right. And then you get down through uh, verse 36. Take up your son. He's alive. There's the second one. All right, the third one, over to chapter 13. And this, to me, is even more remarkable. 2 Kings 13. Elisha's not even alive anymore. <laughs> okay? Um, and you say, well, your, your, your work assignment's done after you're dead, right? I mean, you're, you're done bearing fruit. You're done teaching the word. You're done whatever you're doing. Well, in Elisha's case, he actually had more work to do after he was dead. And... Um, so he dies in verse 20. They buried him. And bands of the Moabites would invade the land in the spring of the year. And uh, as they were burying a man, behold, they saw a marauding band, and they cast the man into the grave of Elisha. And when the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. And that's something. So again, uh, Elijah raised one, Elisha raised two, and one of which was after he was dead. But consider what that typifies i mean consider how our own eternal life and resurrection is by virtue of the fact that our savior died and was laid in a grave and and i mean there's so many pictures and stories and truths that come out of all of these examples that um it really makes for uh, an interesting study to to go through each of these episodes and uh, and draw out all the principles that are there all right those are the old testament ones now the new testament ones uh, you can get them in a couple of different Gospels. I just limited the record there to Luke, Luke 7. Although I think one of them is unique to Luke. So uh, I use the Gospel of Luke for both references. Luke 7, verses 12 through 15. I think the um, the widow's son at Nain is unique to Luke. The uh, uh, Jairus, the synagogue official's uh, son. That one is recorded by Matthew and Mark as well. All right, Luke chapter 7. Soon afterwards, this is Jesus now, he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, that is, the only begotten son, same language as Christ, is the only begotten and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. Came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. 
and Jesus gave him back to his mother. So this is the first of the three that Jesus returns to physical life. Uh, again, and you notice in all of these, though, none of these have been dead very long. Okay? And none of these had been buried. The closest they came, this guy got pretty close. He was in the procession being taken out to the, out to the graveyard. And uh, the last one we saw was, was even closer because he was being thrown into the, into the hole. Um, but they're all uh, barely dead, recently dead, unburied, recently deceased individuals. That's what makes the Lazarus resuscitation unique because he's been buried. He's been in the ground. He's four days in uh, whatever state of uh, decomposition that takes place over that time. And then next chapter over, Luke chapter 8, 49 through 55. Now, he's on his way. And how's this for history repeating itself? He's on the way, but then gets delayed. Okay? And this wasn't by his choice. This was because this hemorrhage lady shows up and touches him, and and, uh, he has to stop and talk to her. And then um, while he was still speaking, someone came from the house, the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Too late. Lord, if you would have been here, my daughter would not have died. Okay? It's the, the same kind of context. You took too long. You were too slow. Why didn't you hurry? Why didn't you get here in time? Well, don't bother him any longer. Uh, you know, don't bother him. He's, she's dead now. But when Jesus heard this, he answered, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. She will be made well. So he comes into the house and uh, limits the observers here to Peter and James and John, plus the girl's parents, and uh, stop weeping, for she has not died, but she is asleep. Now, he uses this again in the Lazarus episode, and I highlighted that last week. I think there's a purpose for it. Uh, They know she's dead, but he says, no, she's asleep. And this is something more than just simply, I understand that sleep is a metaphor. Yes, I get that. Okay, I understand in a poetic passage, sleep is often used as as an idiom, as a metaphor, as an expression. I get that. But this isn't a metaphor here. This is a conversation between Jesus and the people. And same thing in, in John 11 when he's talking to the disciples. Uh, they begin lif- laughing at him knowing that she had died. But he insists on saying, oh no, she's asleep. And I think that's significant. And he's not just slipping into a poetic passage. He's not just using a metaphor there. I think he's teaching the reality that yes, she's physically died. Yes, her soul has departed from her body. But she has not been carried to Abraham's bosom. She's not presently consciously aware of being dead she's dead and doesn't know she's dead does that make sense okay when lazarus died he knew he was dead because the angels carried his soul to abraham's bosom and he was there being comforted and he had the interaction with abraham and death is not a uh, an oblivion death is not a mindless uh, existence it is a conscious bliss oftentimes it shows up that way in doctrinal statements. You know, it's a, a physical death is a conscious uh, bliss and peace in the presence of, of Jesus Christ awaiting the future resurrection and so forth. Okay? But when he says she is asleep, and when he says in John chapter 11 that Lazarus is asleep, I think that's significant. I think that instead of the angels carrying the soul and spirit away, uh, to Abraham's bosom, I think what happened was that the soul departed from the body and an angel took custody of it and stood right there, right there by the corpse, right there by the body. See, 
And that uh, God himself put that soul into a sleep to not be aware of what was going on. Okay? Not like, you know, some Hollywood thing or the occultists that believe in out-of-body experiences and post-death, you know, the lingering of a ghost. You know, after you die, you stand there looking at your body and dumb things like that. All right? But he uses the expression sleep. And see, I think this is the significance. I don't believe that that Lazarus for four days in the ground has been uh, in Abraham's bosom. I don't think he's been fellowshipping with the departed saints. I don't think he's been um, uh, forced to reap all those blessings, enjoy all the peace, enjoy all the glories of being uh, out of this body of death and then having to be returned back to that body of death. I think that's cruel, or it would be cruel, even though that's the way it's often taught. And I've even been taught that that's that's why Jesus wept, because Jesus knew he was asking Lazarus to go from uh, peace and and glory back to a body of, of death and shame. And so Jesus wept because he was asking his friend whom he loved to depart paradise and come back to earth, see, I'm going to teach it differently. I don't think that's why he was weeping at all. He was weeping because of the lack of faith that was being evidenced by everybody in the whole chapter. So um, we'll see that. Anyway, I'm highlighting here the use of the term sleep. She is sleeping. Um, And they began laughing at him, knowing that the child had died. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit immediately returned. So there it is. In the Old Testament, we were told the life return the nephesh return here we're told the the pneuma the spirit return she's a believer a soul spirit and occupies the body once again and she got up immediately and uh, gave orders for something to be given to her to eat and her parents were amazed but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened all right so these are the episodes and going back now to john 11 i think we see all of these details kind of coming in the most comprehensive passage, a whole chapter now of the Bible given over to the physical resuscitation of Lazarus. Again, the insistence that he's simply sleeping, which the disciples didn't follow, and, uh, and then the restoring him back to physical life. All right. Point B. The grieving process for Lazarus was made worse. Because the sisters viewed it as unnecessary. The grieving process for Lazarus was made worse. I mean, grieving is bad enough. Even when you grieve with hope, it still hurts. The grieving process for Lazarus was made worse because the sisters viewed it as unnecessary. Now, are you familiar with, I'm going to look at these verses here. Repeatedly, they kept saying, there's no reason for this. It's your fault. Uh, but what do we have in First Thessalonians regarding those that have died in Christ, right? We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, so that you do not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Okay? Please understand that. When your loved one dies, when physical death takes place, there is grieving. Believers will grieve. Even when your loved one is in heaven, you're still going to grieve. See? The little boy gave, now in heaven. We still grieve. His parents grieve. See, the 11-year-old boy up in Washington State that died the week before last in the funeral that Bruce Einspar did up there at Columbia Bible Church. They grieve. The family grieves. The whole church grieves. 
but it's a grieve with hope. See, they're grieving with hope. That's the difference. Um, but how can you possibly make it worse? I think that's what they're doing here. You make it worse when, in your human viewpoint perspective, you cannot accept what God's will is for the situation. And you disagree. Oh, it was too soon. Oh, it's not right. Oh, it shouldn't have been this way. Oh, he should not have died. It's Jesus' fault. He should have been there. And if he would have been there, he would have stopped it from happening. They're actually wrong about that. If he'd have been there, he'd have let it happen. Because it was the Father's will for Lazarus to die for four days. And I think he had, you know, part, again, part of delaying his departure out of uh, Perea to cross back into Judea again. Part of that reason is so that he didn't have to get there in time to see him die and then uh, watch the, uh, the girls, the sisters here, uh, lose it, you know. All right. And you can put down for verses. I didn't list verses on this, but, um, well, I'll, see, I'll show it to you here in this next point. Um, their declarations betray their blame. All right. The sisters' counterfactual declarations. Do you know that term? I'll teach it to you right now. The sisters' counterfactual declarations. They betray their blame. If you don't want to use counterfactual declarations, just say their sisters' Uh, complaints their words but they betray their blame Martha first in verse 21 then Mary in verse 32 and actually the entire crowd picks up on the on the uh, theme in uh, verse 37 it's Jesus fault he should have been there okay now their statements are what are known in um, philosophical arguments or logic they're known as counterfactual statements. They're not true. They're counter to fact. But they're made as if they were true, then this would be the result. Okay, so it's an if-then statement where the if isn't true, but if it was true, then this is what would happen. Okay, so if, and Jesus does this. It's very important when Jesus does this. This, to me, when a believer completely studies the counterfactual arguments of Jesus Christ, then you will have the complete understanding of omniscience and you will solve the human dilemma of sovereignty and free will. It is a powerful, powerful study. And because it's not understood, uh, then human beings get confused between sovereignty and free will. Uh, or they fall into a logical fallacy that uh, God can only know what he decrees, which is blasphemy. God knows much more than what he decrees. And there's, uh, there's other things that go into that. So when a human being makes an if statement, it's not backed up by any kind of omniscience. It's not necessarily accurate. It might be. It might not be. They don't know. They're just speaking out of what they hope would be the case. See? So think about uh, all the ifs. If, um, you know, if I had not become a pastor, what would I be doing today? See, so make the statement. If I had never become a pastor, today I would be, and then fill in the blank. Okay. But can any of us really do that? I can't. You know, can I say for a fact that I would be, 
uh, a police officer, or I would be a homicide investigator, or I would be uh, whatever. See, or I'd be, I'd be, uh, I'd be, I'd probably be dead. Really, I'd probably be um, if I'd have been disobedient to the will of God and just completely walked away from doctrine. I'd have gotten involved in whatever kind of sin pattern my nature uh, gets me into. Not your business. Uh, and I would have gone into all kinds of dumb things and probably been killed a long time ago. <laughs> we can't make those statements, those if-thens. We can think about them. And sometimes they're not very pleasant to think about. Sometimes they are, though. Oh, man. You know. I, I consider how I would face certain tests if I didn't know the Lord. <laughs> and you say, man, if I didn't know the Lord... Where would I be right now? Oh, man, frightening. So that's, that's a positive thing. So then you rejoice and say, thank God, praise, you know, thank you for saving me. Because I can't imagine the if-then of not being born again, not being saved. Okay? Now, that, I'm taking the time to highlight this because when God makes the if-then statements, we understand that he's making them based upon his omniscience, based upon his uh, evaluation of every possible what if scenario of all of all eternity, every what if, he's already worked it all out. What would be the consequences? And if the uh, miracles that were done in Tyre and Sidon had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented, and they would have remained two thousand years later. They would have remained in existence in in uh, the first century A.D. And that's not just mindless speculation at work. It's not just hyperbole. That's a true revelation of God's plan. God knows every counterfactual. We don't. We typically will uh, make them usually in the anguish of our um, disappointments. Oh, if only. What if? See, that Olympic snowboarder last night. You know, who hit, did you see her disqualify? She hit the thing and, and I mean, she's been waiting four years to make up for the boneheaded thing that cost her the gold medal four years ago where she got the silver medal. And so she's waited four years now to, to get the gold that she feels she threw away four years ago. Well, she didn't get because she disqualified last night. So, but, so hum, human beings and their disappointment, they like to say, oh, oh, if only, if only, if this had been different, if I'd have done that, if I'd have done this. Well, we don't know that. We, we might like to think so, but we don't know that. Okay? God's the only one that knows these things. And so, when they're making these declarations, what they're doing is they're confessing, they are uh, admitting that in their heart, in their soul, they're blaming Him. It's His fault. See, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's uh, Martha in verse 21. Mary, same thing, almost word for word in verse 32. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She can't know that. And as I said a few minutes ago, I think he still would have died. If Jesus would have showed up on time, he still would have died. Because that was the Father's plan for Lazarus to die, to spend four days dead. And then the whole crowd picks up on the attitude as well. Um, after Jesus weeps in verse 35 and the jews were saying see how he loved him but then some of them said could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying they've got the same attitude oh man if he'd have been here but i think there's something even more insidious with the crowd at this point 
could he not have? What are they what are they insinuating here? They're actually going a step beyond the sisters. The sisters are blaming him for not showing up on time. They're actually taking it a step past that, saying, Ah, now we know why he took his time. He deliberately got here too late because he knew he couldn't keep Lazarus from dying. Right? Could he not have kept this man also from dying? Maybe that's why he took so long. He knew he couldn't do anything about it. Okay? And it's just more... uh, each time this comes back around, there's, a, there's an escalation of the uh, lack of faith or the faithless uh, attitudes being expressed here. But how is this any more different than Eve blaming the serpent? Or Adam blaming Eve? Or blaming God? The woman you gave me. You gave me the wrong woman. It's your fault. Okay? All right. And here's the principle under point D. What we view as unnecessary is often very necessary. We view it as unnecessary. It is often quite necessary in God's plan for the greater glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our humanity says, oh, we don't need that. Oh, it's not necessary. It didn't have to happen. But in God's plan, it did have to happen. And thank God that it did. What we view as unnecessary is often quite necessary in God's plan for the greater glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and the increased faith of those who mourn. You understand that? Mourning will teach you things. Suffering teaches you things. The grace that envelops you as you mourn, the faith that gets strengthened because you trust in Him through the difficult times, you're better off for it. And that's, that's really the point to the whole chapter here. And he hasn't even given the resurrection and life message yet. So what we view as unnecessary, every time you say that, oh, if, if this could have been different, then I wouldn't have had to do that. Well, you're supposed to do that. Who says you shouldn't? Just your preference? You'd rather not do that? That's what you're really saying. Well, all right. <laughs> Well, guess what? We don't get our druthers, right? If I had my druthers, I wouldn't do what... Well, we don't have them. Guess what? (laughs) God didn't consult me in His eternal plan. He took the eternal life conferences between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They were in agreement. They put the plan in motion. And, uh, you know, Hebrews doesn't say, run with endurance the race you agree with says, run with endurance the race that's set before you. He didn't ask you if you wanted to do it. What we view as unnecessary is often quite necessary in God's plan for the greater glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and the increased faith of those who mourn. Now look at each of these verses here. Verse 15, 26, 27, 40, and 42. Five different uh, times in this passage, five different verses in this passage that all relate to this principle, what we're talking about. Starting in verse 15. When he was telling them that Lazarus was asleep, and then, well, Lord, if he's falling asleep, he'll recover. We don't need to go there. He'll get better. And they're there again telling the Lord what they need to do, or what they don't need to do, or what they don't want to do. And um, so then he says to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad. 
Jesus got joy out of this. Why? For their sakes. They're going to learn something. They're going to grow. Their faith is going to be strengthened. I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. Not that they may get saved and receive eternal life. They're already saved. But as believers, they need increased faith. And this episode is going to increase that faith. But let us go to him. So uh, they said, well, it's not necessary. We don't have to go. He'll get better. Well, what you view as unnecessary, God says is necessary. In fact, it's very necessary. You've got a faith deficiency right now. And until you go through this test, this is what's going to make it. This is what's going to make it stronger. So he says, I'm glad for your sakes. You're a bunch of cowards. <laughs> if you can't handle this, what are you going to do uh, two months from now when I'm hanging on the cross? They've got to they pass this test right now. They've got to have their faith strengthened right now. This is going to... This is going to prepare them for Golgotha. That's just verse 15. Comes back again in verse 26. Now, now I'm getting a little ahead of myself because we're going to detail this whole message here to Mary and Martha about being the resurrection and the life. But he says to her here, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? This is Martha's opportunity now to increase her faith. Does she still believe God? Even though she's grieving over Lazarus, does she still believe God? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. So she believes it, she knows it, but she's still blaming him. She needs that faith in Christ. She needs to understand what's necessary for greater faith and greater glory. Down to verse 40. And... Um, Remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Well, 13 verses ago, she said she did believe. But she still doesn't. You see that? This is like the, the man that says, I do believe, help my unbelief. We have faith, but faith grows. Faith is strengthened. Faith is increased. There are you know, quantities of faith that we need to grow into. Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And I believe they did so then because she applied faith. Verse 42. And here's his prayer. Starts in verse 41. They removed a stone and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But... Because of the people standing around, I said it. Now think about this. Jesus, of course, wasn't weak in faith. He knew what was going to happen. He was strong in faith and he was obedient. He was doing all these things. But he has disciples that have to learn. He's got these sisters that have to learn. And there's crowds out there that have to learn. And each of them, wherever they are in their faith, I am presuming that Peter, James, and John are higher in the faith than the two sisters and they're higher in faith than the crowds. But at whatever point, maybe some of the people in the crowds are going to get saved. Maybe some of the other people in their adolescence are going to be reinforced. Maybe some of the disciples are going to, going to lock in here in their maturity testing. Whatever it is, faith is going to be increased in every capacity of where this is observed. And think about it in your families. See, maybe, uh, um, husbands 
have a faith uh, conviction and a faith confidence and a faith uh, uh, that things are going to work out and their wife just doesn't see it yet. Well, what's that an opportunity for then? Okay, or turn it around. Maybe the wife is more spiritually minded than she has, typically the case. And she has a faith that uh, that uh, God's going to provide and his plan is going to be unfolded and, and the details are going to uh, be revealed and, and the glory is going to be achieved. And the husband doesn't see it yet. He's pulling his hair out trying to figure out how he's going to pay the bills or accomplish something or get something done. Okay, so one member is strong in the faith and sees how is all going to work out and the other one doesn't. Or maybe parents have this faith and the children don't see it yet. And now you've got a chance to say, hey, kids, let's, uh, let's see how prayer works. Let's see how God provides. See? And it's the teaching opportunity. And in every, maybe it's uh, in, uh, in the case of a pastor to his deacons. See? When five of your nine deacons are unemployed. <laughs> you know? And, uh, or, uh, you know, other things are going on. The building project, things like that. You say, let's keep divine viewpoint in our construction. Let's see what we're doing here. Okay. All right. So that's verse 40 and uh, 42. And he's thanking the Father. He says, I know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And we can discuss whether was that the miracle or was that just simply the verbal instructions to the man that was already raised. He was already back to physical life. The father already did that with respect to the prayer. Jesus is simply giving the Thanksgiving prayer. All right. Already restored to physical life before the stone rolled away. And Jesus' prayer is not a asking the father to raise him. It's a Thanksgiving that he already had. Already done it. See. We can do the same thing. You're praying for provision and whatever. We're praying for right now. We, we got the, the budget report on Sunday, the business meeting, on where we are and where we're short on the, on the building and uh, what our debt's going to be like when we get into the new building. See, we would, of course, prefer to not have that debt when we move into the new building. We would love to have that just completely paid if that's what the Father has for us. See, so how do we pray now? We say, thank you, Father. We haven't seen it yet, but we know the provision's been made. And we're going to thank you for that provision. That's the, the pattern that we have here with Jesus in this prayer. All right. Well, this uh, episode allows Jesus to deliver the I am message of resurrection and the life. Seven different I am messages in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of heaven. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the uh, way, the truth, and the life. I am the... Uh, I'm missing one of them, two of them. Anyway, there's seven of them. Hunt them down and find them. Um, or email Randy Blair. He did a study on these once upon a time. Okay. I am the resurrection and the life. It's an important message. It's one that Jesus gives on this funeral occasion. It's one that I try to give at every funeral I ever do. Because when you're conducting a funeral service or a memorial service or a graveside service, whatever you're doing... Uh, when you're conducting an earthly service for a uh, someone that has died, you are uh, accomplishing a spiritual ministry in the context of someone that has physically died. And you want to be able to detail the distinctions between the physical and the spiritual. 
saved. Because if they're saved, of course, they're still spiritually alive. They never died. Their body died, but they never did. They never died. You understand? I think to my knowledge, I don't think I've done a... I, well, okay. A funeral for an unbeliever. Um, most, if not all of my funerals, have all been for believers. There were one or two that we weren't entirely confident about, but God knows. Anyway, you still give the life and death, spiritual, physical contrast in every funeral service you do. And that's what Jesus does here. See? The I am, the resurrection and the life, properly distinguishes between physical life and spiritual life. And this is really the key here in verses 25 through 27. So, um, in his speech to Martha, where she says, If Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Okay. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she was more in tune with Pharisee theology than Sadducee theology. The Pharisees understood the resurrection. The Sadducees denied the resurrection. But the idea that on the last day that uh, Yahweh would stand upon the earth and the dead would rise, that was understood in Old Testament theology. So she knew that. She knew that. But she would not allow that to comfort her. Be like somebody today saying, I know I'm going to see my loved one in heaven, but that's not good enough. I want to see him today. I want him back. See, well, that's humanity speaking again. You know, that's and, and all that is, is the language of I want, I want, I want. OK, what does God want? God wanted your loved one in his presence. His his work assignment was done. His earthly pilgrimage was complete. See, and I wouldn't want him back for anything. I miss him. I, Gary Williams, I miss Gary. We were, uh, Kevin and I were looking at the uh, nursery door over there. I think that was a door Gary put in. I don't remember now. But, um, you know, little things like that. Sure, I miss Gary. But I wouldn't want him to come back. Are you kidding me? Man, he's been up there and enjoying the presence of Jesus Christ and learning all kinds of things and receiving his rewards. No, I'll, I'll, I'll go to him. He's not going to come back to me. Well, so Martha says, well, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Hint, hint, hint. You know, and again, uh, whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Hint, hint, hint. Um, Let's spit it out, Martha. What do you want here? So Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And here's where the two different lives come into view. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. So if you've placed your faith in Christ, you will live even if you die. Meaning that, of course, uh, physical death is not the end of your existence. You will have a physical resurrection. You will have a, uh, a future life. But more than that, everyone who lives that has spiritual life and believes in me will never die. You will never die, even if you die physically, which everybody does except the rapture generation and Enoch and Elijah. Everybody dies. But if you have spiritual life, that life never dies. It simply departs from the constraints of the physical body and then uh, the angels carry it off to, uh, to where it's going. Abraham's bosom in the Old Testament, heaven today. 
Do you believe this? Do you believe this? What's he asking there? He's not asking if she's saved. I presume Martha's probably been saved for years and years. Okay? But he's asking her to evaluate the doctrine and either walk by faith and accept it or call him a liar to his face. Right? And is that not what we do when we decide to stop walking by faith? You say, well, it's different now. He's, he's seated at the right hand of God. He's not physically right before me. You think it's different? He's not physically standing right before you, but he's actually closer than that. <laughs> he's inside you, isn't he? That's right. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So when you stop walking by faith, when he's made a promise and you don't believe it, what are you doing? All right. Yes, Lord. I have believed you are the Christ, the Son of God, He who comes into the world. All right, so this is her opportunity. I love these. These are uh, Anastasia and Zoe. Anastasia and Zoe are two special girls' names that teach this message, this I am message. Anastasia. I don't have an Anastasia. Pastor Jesse Acosta had a daughter named Anastasia. Wow, something funky happened with my E there. That's okay. Anastasia and Zoe, resurrection and life, are two special girls' names that teach this I am message. Anastasis, number 386 in the Strongest Concordance. Anna speaks of an upward motion if it's spatial or a uh, temporal uh, concept of again. So either raised, stand up or stand again, or both, standing up again. Anastasis for resurrection. And Zoe, the eternal life that's found in Christ. It's not biological life. That's bios. It's Zoe life, which is God's life. In him was life. And that life was the light of man. Strong's number for Zoe is 2222. Easy to remember because it's that road that goes west out of, out of Austin. All right. Anastasia and Zoe are two special girls' names that teach this I am message. You've got an opportunity. And I love it. Anytime I encounter anyone with a name, I'm able to take it back to a Bible name and say, oh, wow. Did you know your name means this? Did your parents name me because of the Bible or whatever? And it just kind of gives you a conversational open door to start talking about spiritual things. You know, you, you meet a guy. In fact, my waiter the other day, is, uh, his name was Levi. Great. We can talk about Levi. We can talk about Leviticus. We can talk about Israel and priesthoods and all kinds of things. Well, you can do a lot with Levi. See, well. Or if he doesn't have any kind of framework for it, then you realize, wow, okay. <laughs> Parents gave you that name for a reason, and uh, maybe I should tell you about it. These two principles then. Spiritual life does not end with physical death. You know that. Spiritual life does not end with physical death. He who believes in me, who, who lives and believes in me, will never die. Never. Never. So think about all your loved ones that physically died. They never died spiritually. As, you know, assuming they're saved. They never died spiritually. They died physically. They no longer reside in the earthly tent that was their physical body. But they never died. They simply received their permanent change of duty station. Their promotion to glory. Their work assignment in that body was over and done with. Spiritual life does not end with physical death. 
Spiritual death can only precede spiritual life. It can never follow spiritual life. Because spiritual life is eternal life. Think it through. Spiritual death can only precede spiritual life. Maybe I should stop right there and make that its own point. Typically, life comes before death, does it not? Something is alive before it dies. Not for Adamic humanity. Okay? Adam and Eve were the only human beings that ever went from spiritually alive to spiritually dead when they fell in the Garden of Eden. And then received spiritual life once again when they got saved after their expulsion from the Garden. Okay? For everybody since Adam and Eve, spiritual death precedes spiritual life. You and I were dead before we were saved. Every one of us in this room used to be dead, spiritually dead. Okay? It can only precede spiritual life. It can never follow spiritual life. Because Zoe, the spiritual life, is Zoe, is always, always eternal. The only word for life that ever attaches itself to Ionios for eternal is the Zoe life. Bios, biological life, is never attached to Ionios. No other kind of life is ever attached to Ionios. Only Zoe is attached to Ionios for eternal. This is why we say if you're born once, you're going to die twice. The second death cast into the lake of fire. But if you're born twice, the most you'll ever die is once. And if you're the rapture generation, you won't even die that, right? Because uh, the spiritually dead that die physically, they have to stand in the great white throne judgment and then be cast into the lake of fire, which is described as a second death. See? So if you're only born once, if all you have going for you is your physical birth, you know, and that happy birthday you sing every year, well, there you go. That's all you get. You're born once, you die twice. But if you're born again... And praise God, for me it was September of 73, whenever you got saved. When you're born a second time, you just removed that second death ever from being a consideration. You're only going to die maximum once, and that's going to be a physical process. See, And that's what, um, that's what this message here teaches. So you can walk them through. You can, you can take these verses right here. This I am the resurrection and the life passage. Verse 25, verse 26 you can end it with the, do you believe this? Right there, two verses. There's a gospel outline. You can take any unbeliever, walk them through it. Read those verses. Explain physical life, spiritual life, physical death, spiritual death. Walk them through it. Show how Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. If they don't have Christ, they don't have life. And uh, this uh, passage can be extremely evangelistic. All right, well, I'm already three minutes long. Uh, we have one more area we've got to cover, and that's verses 38 through 44. And that's actually the, the, the miracle itself. We've kind of already detailed it, but the, the, um, the glory of God that happens here, how he deals with the crowd, why he's weeping. Um, you know, Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the English Bible. Um, we'll spend one more Wednesday on this, I think. And then we'll... Uh, 
we'll move beyond it because there's some lessons that happen. The reaction that happens, verses 45 through 54, um, he comes out. Of course, he's all wrapped up in the burial wrappings and, and that, and they've got to untie him. And then, uh, and then they go to feast. They're going to go back home and, and celebrate and have a feast. See, while meanwhile the opposition uh, reacts by uh, plotting his his murder. Right? We got to do something about this Jesus guy. And so the two reactions uh, will evaluate. Actually, the reaction to the resurrection comes up as episode 27, and uh, we'll give that a separate outline and a separate episode here in our study. All right. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for this day. Thank you, Father, for the message of Lazarus. Thank you for the resurrection and life application, Father, uh, for showing us a, a very simple and, and uh, easy way that we can... Uh, communicate gospel information to this lost and dying world. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your truth. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.